The biggest pitfall of power is how far people will go to attain it and how much farther they'll go to preserve it. Welcome to an all new episode of the Future Podcast, predictions and prescriptions for a world drowning in borscht, but starved for meaning. I'm Steve Factor, and honestly, this is an episode I never in my life expected to do. First of all, I've been a Ukrainian American my whole life, never thought of myself that way, always thought of myself as an American. Honestly, didn't think Ukraine would matter in my life or in a geopolitical sense. And today, it's both. And I think I have a unique perspective to add to this. First, my grandfather served in the Soviet military. He died fighting Hitler and the Nazis. My dad served in the Soviet military, and boy, did I get the stories uh, growing up. Lots and lots of stories. And then there's me. I'm far too important to the podcasting industry to have served in any military capacity. However, I still have some value here. I not only immigrated here as a kid from uh, what used to be the Soviet Union, from Kiev, but... I also grew up in a community full of Russians and Ukrainians. I think I have a unique view just from that, but also from a philosophical context. What I'm seeing right now in the news is so, you know, I, I think there's the political partisans that always try to fit whatever is happening into their agenda, whether they're conspiracy minded or Democrats or Republicans. And then you've got all kinds of misinformation happening and people just trying to get clicks. That's not what's important here. What's important here is understanding the philosophical context of why this is happening, what can be done about it and what to expect next. And embedded in all this is a sort of solution. I think you'll really enjoy this episode, so let me build this story for you. What's happening in Ukraine is obscene. The idea that in modern times, someone is going to solve problems, senselessly killing innocent people, it's insanity. And then you look at the country, you know, and you see these people lined up to, to leave and they look just like us. They're dressed in Western clothes. The cities look Western. They've got all the gadgets that we have. And you think, yeah, this could happen to us. There is some sort of Western bias there because, you know, you look at other countries where there are genocides and you're like, well, you know, those countries are so underdeveloped, they're so poor, they're fighting for resources. They, they don't need resources. Putin doesn't really need anything from Ukraine. There's no reason to, to do any of this. And honestly, it's the first time I felt any kind of connection to Ukraine, because once you leave a country... You left for a reason. You saw greener pastures someplace else. I still don't get the sense like they're my people. These are my people, you know, as, as stupid as we might be uh, a lot of the time. But these are my idiots. Um, but when I look at them, I, for the first time, have some sort of bond that I didn't know was there. But more importantly, just that basic human empathy. Like, wh Why? Why? And I'm going to do my best to try to answer that question in this episode. It's going to get a little rocky because it's not as clear cut as 
the media would have you believe. And as a Ukrainian, I am doing my best to look at the other side and look at the American side. And I think you'll get some insight that you won't get anywhere else. The first question that comes up, is Russia and Ukraine basically the same thing? Why are they even apart? And it's been Putin's perspective and people like Steve Bannon and some people on the right saying that they're basically the same country or the same culture. We shouldn't intervene. This is their business. And in fact, Putin was quoted as saying, Ukraine has never had its own authentic statehood. There has never been a sustainable statehood in Ukraine. So that's his perspective. Now, Russia's position has been pretty consistent all along. So it's not like Putin came up with this. In fact, when Boris Yeltsin in 1993 was negotiating the disassembly of the Soviet Union, he implored that Russia get special powers to be the guarantor of, quote, peace and stability in the former regions of the USSR. That's kind of what's been happening with the Russian Federation or some of the former Soviet republics that are now under Putin's control or at least influence. They kind of are extensions of Russia and relics of the old Soviet Union. If you buy that they are one and the same people, then we're watching Vladimir Putin brutally assault his own people. That's just using his own logic, right? And there are questions of whether we should intervene. So Francis Fukuyama, who's a historian, written many books, he said, quote, there is a younger generation coming up that does not want to be part of the old corrupt system that believes in European values and wants nothing more than for Ukraine to become part of Europe. And honestly, it's the same thing in Russia in Moscow and some of these cosmopolitan centers, the next generation doesn't want to fight these old wars. They don't want this militarism. They don't want nukes. They don't want any of this. They are culturally European. There's so much in common <laughs> that you would almost start to buy the argument that they're one and the same. Then there's my own experience. Growing up, you couldn't tell the Russians from the Ukrainians. Everyone spoke Russian. Everyone was culturally the same. And, you know, you kind of had these stereotypes that were not that different from what a Texan might call a New York. Oh, you're from New York. You must love the big buildings and the tiny apartments and overpaying and all the whatever. And then the New Yorkers like, look at these, you know, dumb rubes with their guns or whatever, the, you know, whatever their stereotypes are. We were from Kiev, which is the largest city and capital of uh, Ukraine. I had friends from Odessa, which is a very small small city, but a city nonetheless. And we would always call them Adisite, which is really just a way of saying people from Odessa. But to me, as a kid, it always sounded like idioti, which means idiots in Russian. And there were disparaging things said because you kind of treat them as not quite like farmers, but people from the boonies. So people from Kiev think they're more sophisticated. So it, it's just a lot of that. So at some point I started thinking, well, is my perception way off here? So I decided to call my dad and he works his way to a point very meticulously. This took a while. His basic point was there's not much of a difference in Kiev and some of the bigger cities in the Ukraine. They 
are Russian speakers and culturally very similar to Russians themselves. It's once you start moving out to some of the outer regions, the more rural areas where people are likelier to speak Ukrainian instead of Russian. And that's where you start getting cultural separatist vibes. I guess the best analog uh, from what he was saying would be like Catalonia and Spain. But there's much more animosity between those two. There's not that same animosity between, you know, like the Ukrainian speakers and the Russian speakers and the city and the country folk. In fact, they kind of have a unified pride in having this country and they don't really have that chasm that the Catalan every once in a while they just want to split off for cultural economic historical reasons they're fine coexisting but if Russia were to take over my dad's like people in Kiev people in the cities probably wouldn't skip a beat. Life would be very similar. They are quite a bit poorer than, you know, let's say the people in Moscow, or at least the elites in Moscow. It would be kind of similar to when East Berlin and West Berlin united. Like they were very different economically. East Berlin was basically starved of progress for a long time, but eventually they caught up. Culturally, they were very similar. Leave it at, uh, (laughs) Putin has a point, But that doesn't mean that it justifies an incursion into Ukraine. Now, however mild the difference between Russian and Ukrainian cultures might be, Putin is single-handedly creating a distinct Ukrainian identity. Nothing brings people closer than going through war or any kind of extreme experience. Why do you think people used to walk out of prisons covered in tattoos? Now they walk out of malls covered in tattoos. Shopping is treacherous, especially if there's a big sale. Let's talk about why this is happening. What does Putin want? I started thinking that I should talk about the psychological side of what Putin wants and then the strategic side. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized Those two are inseparable when it comes to him. And I'll give you a quick anecdote. Uh, I'm not going to get all the details right, but just to give you an idea of who Vladimir Putin is. Robert Kraft, the very rich owner of the New England Patriots who have won many a Super Bowl, was in a meeting with Vladimir Putin. And Putin asked, oh, look at that, what a, what a cool ring. So uh, Robert Kraft took off the ring and Putin looked it over. He put it in his pocket, walked out. This is a $25,000 Super Bowl ring. And the bodyguards for Putin, there were three bodyguards, basically sort of blocked off uh, Robert Kraft from even seeing what was happening and Putin just slid out the door. That is a gangster move. Putin is a gangster. Tony Soprano is small potatoes compared to what uh, Vladimir Putin is. He is one of the richest people in the world. We'll never know his exact wealth, but he owns pretty much Gazprom, which is the big energy company, and big chunks of God knows what else. We'll probably never have a full accounting of exactly how rich he is. When you're that rich and powerful, you get surrounded by a lot of yes men. And in your country, everywhere you go, when you're that powerful and you have a country that respects power, in fact, admires power, anywhere you go, you get unbelievable respect because there may be plutonium in your soup if you don't. That is what he's used to. And then when he 
travels outside or he tunes into Western media or he looks around what's happening in Europe, he does not get any of that respect. The former head of the German Navy, K. Akim Schoenbach, I'm sure I butchered that name a little bit, uh, he was fired for answering the question, what does Putin want? This was his answer. He said, what Putin wants is respect, meaning deference to Russian interests in its near abroad, which means the neighboring countries, and that the West should accommodate this desire. Now, what does that mean tactically? On some level, it means recapturing some of that old Soviet glory, because Putin is a former KGB agent. He grew up in a powerful nation, or what he thought was a superpower. And then slowly under his watch, not necessarily the whole time when he was uh, president, but watching Gorbachev and Yeltsin, he saw this thing dismembered piece by piece by piece, a country that he thought was powerful, not just a country, an empire, a consolidation of countries. And in his own way, the Russian Federation is a way to reinstate some of that control, some of that old glory, some of that respect. A big part of that is stopping NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO was originally created after World War II to essentially contain the Soviet Union, to contain the spread of communism. And it signed up a number of countries, but it's been adding more and more countries as members. The United States, Canada, a lot of the Western European countries, and a few of the Eastern European countries. And now we've been talking for about 10 years of whether Ukraine will be allowed in. And Putin has always said, Ukraine is his line in the sand. You don't get to keep surrounding my country with your military alliance. Now, NATO claims to be defensive and is structured to be defensive. We don't get to decide that. Putin gets to decide whether he sees them as a threat or not based on his actions. Once you start accumulating troops in countries that are neighboring Russia, especially one that has a huge border, I forget exactly how many kilometers, but that is his red line. And the U.S. is the biggest part of NATO. In fact, the U.S. has 750 bases in at least 80 countries. 173,000 troops deployed in 159 countries. And the biggest ones are Japan, South Korea, and Germany. Now, there is a difference between militarism, which is how a lot of people want to position the American presence, because they'll say, look, this is just imperialism. America is uh, putting troops all over the world. So essentially, this is an empire. America and certainly our leaders have made the argument that this is deterrence. We're trying to keep not only us safe, but our allies safe. And it would be very naive to think that South Koreans, Germans, and Japanese would feel safer without U.S. troops on their land. Because Japan and South Korea are under threat by China. You know, and the Japanese are very vulnerable. They're getting older. They've got a history of aggression with China. It's going to get harder and harder for them to defend themselves. That's why they have something like, uh, what's the number? Over 53,000 U.S. troops in Japan. It would also be naive of us to think that the U.S. could thrive in a world dominated by China 
or Russia for that matter. So there is an argument for deterrence. Now, the question is, when does deterrence become incitement? Is putting our troops in Ukraine incitement? We never have to answer that question because Putin has answered that question. We all have to live by his definition of whether that's incitement or not, because guess what? He's been incited. So that threat of signing up Ukraine to NATO has caused him to want to invade. Now, you might be saying to yourself, uh, Steve, uh, you're doing an awful lot of rationalizing of what seems to be an insane person who just attacked and is ruthlessly, unnecessarily murdering people from a country that you were born in. It's absolutely wrong and immoral to kill people and to attack nations. But I also think it's important we understand that we are all playing the same game. And that's what happened with Cuba in the 60s when the Soviet Union and the communists started expanding their sphere of influence and Castro adopted their worldview. Kennedy was going to send troops. We were going to go to war because the Soviet ideology and sphere of influence landed in our own backyard. Does that sound familiar? We are all playing the same game. Nobody's hands are exactly clean. I think we need to understand that at least before we go on to the next stage. So why did Putin choose this specific moment to do what he did? In a word, weakness. I tweeted in 2014, Putin is putting the old band back together. Russia is the new Blues Brothers, and Ukraine better want to play the sax. His motives have always been the same. The Russian glory, or the Soviet glory, was always something he craved. Along with it, respect. And in Russia, power is respect. And guess what the opposite of power is? Weakness. Leon Panetta, who was head of the CIA was interviewed by a German magazine, big German magazine called Der Spiegel or Spiegel. This is his quote. The one thing that I remember from all my intelligence briefings and my dealings with the Russians is that when you deal with the Russians, you have to deal with them from strength, not from weakness. They understand strength. Putin is a wolf. And when he smells blood or Bengay, he attacks. And Biden is a lamb, unfortunately. In fact, Putin sees the entire West as weak. Europe is completely defenseless without NATO. And NATO is completely defenseless without the United States. But Putin knows Americans will not die for Ukraine. They might not even die for the other member nations they're supposed to die for, according to the treaty. And Putin knows what the sentiment here is on war in some of our previous wars. He knows everything. You think he doesn't have cable? He's got all the channels. He's not sitting around binging Netflix. Yeah, our past military interventions were basically our Garfunkel solo albums. They haven't produced a hit in 50 years. We're also not honoring our agreements. And he sees that. In 1994... 
Ukraine agreed to give up its nuclear weapons in exchange for the U.S., the U.K., and Russia preserving and defending its territorial boundaries. Uh, It was called the Budapest Memorandum. The Russians breached that in 2014, and the Americans and British were nowhere to be found. This agreement, whatever it was, is worthless. And Biden keeps projecting this weakness. He announced that he's thinking about sending 5,000 troops to Eastern Europe, including to Romania and Poland. Russia has 120,000 troops encircling and now invading Ukraine. It's not even a serious proposal. It's sort of floated by the administration to see how people react. And you and I know the public isn't going to go for it. We don't want another war. We're fresh off two wars as it is. And we've burned so much cash and so many lives. And it's all there for Putin to see. We're just reinforcing our weakness. 5,000 troops is a joke. And Putin knows it. He's calling our bluff. But don't worry. Our 5,000 troops are extremely diverse. From what I've read, there's no way that 120,000 white, young, male Russians can defeat diversity. So therefore, they don't stand a chance. To be very blunt, Russians see us as pussies. You think Putin doesn't see the military here tweeting about pronouns or diversity day or the commercials they put out? Well, this is a a biracial quinoa lover who loves to take long walks with uh, their non-binary dog. And meanwhile, you look at the Russian military commercials. It's a bunch of hunky young Russian dudes playing catch with a missile. And every once in a while, there's just punch a kid in the face who's not listening. That's Russia in a nutshell. On June 20th, 2021, I tweeted, sending a meek, unfocused old man with an unclear agenda to meet with a mob boss is projecting weakness. It's an invitation for more malevolence. Russia only understands strength. This was almost a year ago when Biden agreed to meet with Putin. Putin got everything he wanted just in the meeting because that is respect. That is his legitimacy. That is all he wanted. Whereas Biden walked in with no agenda, unfocused, didn't know what he wanted, and he just looks so weak and old by comparison. And Putin sniffs that out because he is a wolf and he smelled some very old, very funky blood. Countries are a lot like criminals. They get bolder when they think enforcement is going to be weak. It's not that the U.S. determines what a country is going to do. What Putin wants to do has already been clear for a long, long time. What changes is perception of American strength. It is the only opposing force to Russia's military strength. So Putin did the math. He sees Biden as weak. Now, before conservatives get all excited and full of themselves, like, oh, Trump is strong. No, Trump is something else. He's not considered weak or strong. What Trump is, 
was crazy and unpredictable. That is a third category, something that the U.S. has never really had before. I mean, we've had some out there presidents in terms of their personal behavior, but outwardly, a lot of them pretty much held it together and had a certain image that they project of, of control and sanity. Very rarely did they come off unhinged. Trump was unhinged. Now, crazy comes with its own set of pluses and minuses. One thing that crazy and unpredictable does really well is deterrence. Adam Carolla put it best when he said, let's say you had two neighbors and you had to fight one of them. One of them wears a mask alone on the beach. The other grabs a hot mic and screams, drink bleach into it. Who are you fighting? It's just that simple. And Biden's projected weakness in other ways. For example, when he agreed to meet with Putin and he snubbed the Ukrainian president. So Ukraine ended up signing a infrastructure deal with China. So Biden ended up 0 for 2. We lost the opportunity to uh, get closer to Ukraine and have an infrastructure deal and have them in our sphere of influence. And we never got anything out of Putin because Putin wasn't going to be used as a pawn by America uh, against China. That was never going to happen. This was not good strategy. And this, again, projects weakness, projects a lack of leadership. And Russia is getting stronger. They're becoming more self-sufficient. Putin makes it a point to say in interviews, he said, for six consecutive years, they have produced 100 million tons of grain, which is more than enough to feed a lot of carbs to to Russians. But that's pretty much what Russians eat. A long time ago, there were sanctions against uh, Russia and they were not able to buy marine diesel engines. So guess what Russia did? They figured out how to make marine diesel engines. They have tons of engineers uh, who are able to just deconstruct it and build it themselves. All of this is strategic. Self-sufficiency allows you to pursue your dreams. And he dreams of Ukraine. And he is pursuing it. So they're becoming much more self-sufficient. And they're sitting on tons of oil. In fact... The oil is their leverage. This is another reason why Europe is weak. Germany kicked itself in the nuts jackass style. While China is building 150 nuclear reactors over the next 15 years, Germany went non-nuclear green and they crippled themselves. They doubled their fuel costs compared to France, which is 75% nuclear. And now they're warning people that they're going to have power cuts and blackouts and likely even higher rates because they can't sustain consistent electricity. These green solutions aren't ready for prime time yet. And we're in the process of making the same mistake here. The priority is security first, climate change second, always. Whether we change that order or not, the reality does not change. Without security, climate won't matter. So Germany ended up having to strike a deal with Russia to build a gas pipeline so they could actually have real fuel and and lower their fuel costs and supply their, their citizens with energy. They are also projecting weakness. When they asked the new chancellor, what are you going to do? Are you putting this gas pipeline on the table? He was being very cagey. And guess what cagey is a synonym for? Weakness. 
When Putin sees that, he knows he has them. He knows this is not a country that's going to go to war with him. He knows that's not a country that's going to send troops to defend Ukraine. And there's no avoiding it. Russia has overwhelming military power, more than any other country besides the U.S. And China is unknown, but it might be comparable. You know, China certainly has the manpower. Western leaders, not only are they not prepared for war, we're not even prepared for sanctions. Everything that we have put out there is feeble. Putin is prepared for it. He knows the pipeline might be cut off. They know what's coming. He's prepared for 100% cut off. And speaking of weakness, this entire negotiation with Russia over Ukraine was botched. First, we started negotiating unilaterally. What business does the U.S. have with Russia? Nothing. We have no trade with them. How are we negotiating with them unilaterally? Makes zero sense. The best that could have come out of that is Russia extracting uh, concessions from us because there's nothing that we could realistically cut off from them. There's very little that they export or that we need from them. This should have been handled by a coalition of nations, but instead, you know, we took it sequentially. Then Macron went in from France. He came out saying, hey, I think we've made progress. I think we figured out a way that we can find a solution together. And then they had a press conference. Putin was standing there and Macron was saying this. And Macron was all optimistic and Putin basically embarrassed him. Here's what he said in Russian. I I watched it in Russian, so I, I only have the Russian clip. He said, that's why he's tortured me here for six hours. He basically saw Macron as a nuisance and he said it. He's like, why are you bothering me? That is an embarrassment. And I've always liked Macron. He's a staunch defender of liberalism. But in Russian terms, he's also a pussy. Can you sew a bunch of pussies together to create a lion? That is the question. I don't have the answer to that. But if at the very least, the US, France, Germany, all of them got together and presented a united front and had some very clear conditions and were prepared to back whatever needed to happen if those conditions weren't met, that would be one thing. That's how you negotiate. What we did was an embarrassment. It was an embarrassment. And realistically, Europe and China are the only ones that have enough trade with Russia to make any kind of deal. They need to be at this table. So we had to drag China in if we were to have any sort of success and probably offer something to them so they could exert some leverage on Russia. That would have been a strategic solution. We did none of that. We had no business being at that table unilaterally. It was stupid. This is a failure of U.S. leadership. For better or worse, we are the project manager. We are the one who provides the most troops, the most money for military. In fact, Europe wouldn't have health care if the U.S. wasn't subsidizing NATO and Europe's defense because they would have to spend all of that money on military. And in a way, 
this approach was very typical sort of ugly American, you know, like the, the stereotype of the big fat American who walks into a Parisian cafe wearing a Hawaiian shirt and shorts and just pointing to, you know, ah, give me one of them, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, don't you speak English? You know, like that, that whole stereotype, like that's our foreign policy. We're acting like the rest of the world doesn't exist. The rest of the world exists and we better start acting like it. And there are a lot of pieces on this chessboard and we need to start playing chess and not checkers. We're not even playing checkers. We're, we're playing handball. <laughs> we can't handle all those variables. I get it. The American public has been isolated from a lot of this because we don't border any dangerous countries. So we take our eye off the ball and also we're bombarded. Every day there's some sort of tragedy, whether it's a, a war or a natural disaster or a murder or something else. All of these things that we never used to know, but because of social media, we're bombarded by it. And in fact, there's an investor, he's a billionaire, really successful, Chamath Palpatia. He recently got in trouble uh, when he said he doesn't care about the Uyghurs. And then of course he got a bunch of social media crap and he uh, backed off on his statement. But there's a tiny little Chamath living inside of all of us. Even me right now, as passionate as I am talking about it here and debating it with my dad, I have nothing at stake. I'm not going to have to make any sacrifices, uh, certainly not with my life, not financially. No one I know is personally going to pay the price for anything that goes on in Ukraine. So we're all a little bit full of shit. So what do we do? about this. I wrote this in 2017, but I think it's still very relevant. First of all, I wrote, Russia is nobody's friend. In fact, most countries are not friends. They're only allies. But the situation is complicated. At the time, I thought Putin was just rattling his saber, trying to get Europe and the US to drop their sanctions. It's sort of like a, a Michelin star version of what North Korea does. Every once in a while, they'll, they'll drop a missile in the ocean just to get us to talk to them and send them some food. And Russia was essentially doing the same thing, but in a more sophisticated and threatening way. Putin's strategy was never military in nature. He was looking to weaken and dissolve NATO with propaganda election interventions and deals with China and securing spheres of influence and extending that sphere of influence first to Soviet or former Soviet republics, but eventually getting other European countries hooked on what he's got, which is basically two things, oil and military. And the way he gets them hooked on that second one sometimes gets ugly. At the time, I thought Trump would be a pushover because honestly, I fell for a lot of the fake narratives that were out there about Trump. It turned out, this was just proven, that uh, Hillary Clinton's people actually concocted all of this research that they handed to the Obama administration to spy on the Trump campaign. So, so essentially, all of this was BS. Putin ended up doing much more damage under Obama, who he also thought was weak. Uh, that's when the Syria incursion and intervention happened. That's also when he started threatening Ukraine in 2014. So this is how he operates. So when I thought about what should the U.S. do, these were my four recommendations. I added a fifth in 2018. So first, recommit to NATO big time, financially and publicly. Look, if you're going to be in a treaty, 
you have to be in a treaty. You have to be full-throated about it, and you can't be wishy-washy, and that's what we have been. Number two, isolate Putin economically by locking him out of as many global trade deals as possible and reinforce strong trade sanctions. Number three, use travel restrictions, diplomatic and civilian, if necessary. Number four, force him to the bargaining table to get cooperation on military incursions, hacking, open media in his own country, and basically not killing reporters, and propaganda. And use trade as a positive lever. Give him some upside. Make him look like a winner to his people. Give him something that allows him to come back and say, hey, I got this out of the U.S. So there were plenty of things we could have offered, and we did none of that. In 2018, I added lock down the oligarchs, restrict their ability to travel across the EU and the US and prevent them from buying property and freezing their accounts. And that puts incredible social pressure on Putin. Because remember, Putin is not an island. He operates in a social and class structure and a power structure. So if his friends who are also power seekers who are also oligarchs aren't able to travel, they're going to exert pressure on Putin. He's not just going to shoot them in the face, although anything is possible with uh, with him. And really, you only can deal with the oligarch class because the, the public has no power in Russia. Uh, they are powerless and toothless, mostly figuratively. Is it too late for this strategy? I don't think so. Obviously, it's too late for Ukraine. A lot of people are tragically dying. A lot of people are talking about concessions. Now, Ukraine may have to concede, but will Europe concede on NATO? Will they make other concessions like on the pipelines and Germany continuing with that deal? Some people have talked about trying him for war crimes. <laughs> I don't think Putin is showing up for that particular hearing. In fact, he might just send Snowden <laughs> instead of him. He's like, here, here, take your guy. The only decent idea I've heard so far is creating a brain drain, telling anyone who's got any kind of technical degree in Russia that they can immigrate to the United States or any part of Europe. So essentially take all their smartest people away and hurt the country that way. So they can't replicate those diesel engines or whatever else that they're not able to trade for. It's interesting on the surface, but it presumes way too much. First of all, it presumes that these people want to leave and that they're not loyal to the country. Secondly, that Putin's going to allow them to leave. And thirdly, that if they do, that he's not going to harm their families, which is certainly not beyond him to try. I think there have been people here in the United States that Putin has had executed, like former reporters, you know, they've been poisoned or shot or whatever. So this is not a very easy game to play. This is a very dangerous person we're dealing with. The other thing everyone's talking about is financial restrictions, blocking all of the bank accounts for Russia and Russians. And that's already started happening. So SWIFT announced uh, that they're going to cut off Russia. And there's been a huge run on the banks. There's these uh, videos of uh, people lined up in in front of Russian ATMs trying to get their money out, which, of course, uh, you know, there's only so much in the ATMs. So people are getting screwed. The ruble has already plummeted dramatically. And of course, this is punishing the people, but 
it's punishing the people in a country where the people have very little leverage. The people who have some leverage are the oligarchs, and they've already hidden so much of their money overseas and other accounts under other people's names in real estate. So it's much harder to regulate. The big risk is pushing them closer to China could end up hurting the United States because the only thing keeping the United States afloat is the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. If China starts denominating Russian oil purchases in yuan over time, that contributes to weakening the dollar. Now, it's not a slam dunk that China is going to go rogue and side with Russia because as Russia gets more and more isolated, China's like, oh, well, maybe not us because they don't want to be a rogue state. They have tons of trade with the rest of the world and they have to maintain those relationships. They're not fully self-sufficient like Russia claims to be. So in the past, they've held up uh, sanctions against Iraq. Uh, let me look at my notes here. North Korea and Iran. And also they don't want to live next to a crazy violent neighbor either. If Putin gets taken out, that's to their advantage or gets significantly weakened through this process. They now have a lesser power next door to them that could potentially threaten them in some capacity. Russian state TV's Soloviev, I'm not familiar with him. I don't watch Russian TV all day like my parents. He is endorsing full-scale isolationism. He said, quote, I know some of you are finding this tough. We'll overcome it all. We'll endure it all. We'll rebuild our own economy from scratch. An independent banking system, manufacturing, and industry will rely on ourselves. Russia is basically building the world's toughest kibbutz. And mind you, this is a country talking isolationism that hasn't produced a single exportable product worth buying in my entire lifetime. It's no easy task for a bunch of Russians to sit around going, I, I think we've almost figured out the iPad, you know, <laughs> and a bunch of them are, you know, like soldering or, you know, or, or shaving the edges off. And it's just like some, some block where you cut your fingers because it's not shaped right. It's not trivial to become isolationist. You're still going to need to trade with the world, especially if you're Russia. Maybe a more inventive economy, maybe China that's more adept could possibly do it, but Russia is going to struggle. Now, there's a much bigger problem with financial isolationism and isolationism in general as a strategy. It's obvious what happens if Putin wins. He gets Ukraine. He'll get the scorn of the world and all sorts of other backlash, but he will get his prize. But if he loses, he becomes rabid. There are no rules once an aggressor feels cornered. And I specifically use the word feels. Whether he is cornered or not is irrelevant because this whole thing is about Putin's feelings. His feelings of wanting respect, his feeling of being threatened by a NATO expansion into Ukraine, whether he was truly threatened or not, almost doesn't matter because of his response. And we have to be concerned with his feelings because he has nukes and because he has a powerful military. When you're isolated, when you're excommunicated, nukes are back on the table. Everything is back on the table when you feel like you have no way out and you're an aggressor. 
Already, Putin is threatening nuclear war in not-so-subtle language because, realistically, he's losing. He didn't expect the kind of response he got not only from Ukraine but from the rest of the world. Germany is shipping all kinds of military equipment. Germany has been the most pacifist nation anywhere in Europe. Is he just bluffing or does he feel cornered? So that leaves you with two options. The first is find a way to make him disappear. They tried three, four times with Hitler. Sometimes it's your own people that do it because they're like, we don't want to be attacking Ukrainians. And sometimes it's outsiders that find a way. Either way, it's no easy task. And, you know, Putin is much better at it than we are. The second option is to not completely shame and isolate him. That's exactly what happened after World War I. Germany was decimated. The sanctions were crushing and people were starving and struggling. And guess what people do when they're desperate and struggling? They listen to crazy people. And that's exactly what they got. They got a guy in Hitler who walked up there and promised them not food, not delicious sprinkles on their frozen yogurt, but greatness. He promised them greatness and they bought it. They bought it for a really long time and it went really far. So careful with extreme isolationism. So give him some dignity to walk away with. Otherwise, he becomes far more dangerous. That is if he is still the leader. And this is what we did with Saddam Hussein the first time. After that first war with Iraq, when Iraq was the aggressor, They left Hussein in office, but he was extremely weakened. He had to subject himself to all kinds of inspections. He couldn't have certain kinds of weapons. There were all sorts of trade limitations. He was a diminished man and a diminished leader, but still was able to retain leadership and in some capacity save face that he wasn't a total loser and didn't get defeated by all these other countries. We have to make that distinction between punishing the man and punishing the population. And it's not always easy because we have some very blunt tools and sometimes it requires some sharp minds to use blunt tools. And the more I watch what's happening in Ukraine, the more I realize Putin might not have a chance. The bravery of everyone from the president, Zelensky, all the way down to the all the people on the streets, they are all fighting for survival. The Russian soldiers don't want to be there. These are just kids. And I don't think anyone is supportive of Putin. So if he loses support of his military, he's done. And this is one of those situations where the bully might get punched in the nose, but the question is, does he slink away learning his lesson or does he come back with a bigger gun? And at this point, it's hard to say if there's a rational person there making strategic decisions or if Putin is now just a madman who is ready to do anything for victory or sees himself as having taken steps and there's no way back. And that's a very scary proposition, not just for the Ukraine, for the world. But I do think there is a real solution. It is not immediate, but it's something we absolutely have to do and that will allow us to win in the long term. And that is our own disinformation campaign. I'm going to explain exactly what that means in a second. The U.S has steadily abandoned its global leadership 
it's also abandoned its moral high ground, whether it's attacking sovereign nations like Iraq or talking about, hey, it's okay to torture as long as you get the information you want, or what happened to George Floyd. All of these things make us look bad on the global stage. But worse, it degrades our moral authority. And when you don't have moral authority, you don't have authority. People don't want you to tell them what to do when they think you're no better than they are. We've also degraded our alliances. Uh, Trump famously hung out with all the despots at, uh, at these global conferences instead of with our allies and trying to figure out how we create joint strategies against our mutual adversaries. And we've also surrendered a lot of our economic strength. We've burned all this money in stupid wars. We spend a fortune on military. We spent a fortune on the pandemic. We've put ourselves in a very, very precarious position financially, and we've bled a lot of industries. And yet we still have a lot of poor people. We still have a ton of debt. We still have people who can't afford housing. We still have homelessness. You know, so we're not addressing our issues and we're botching so many other things and burning money doing it. And worst of all, we've degraded our individual resolve and we've done it in so many ways, whether it's wokeness or whether it's just narcissism on social media, you could argue this is narcissism, whatever, it's, it's degrading. It's reflected in many parts of our society. In 2019, I wrote how we're entering a new multipolar world. And I think it's important to revisit that for a second. First, Democracy and capitalism have decoupled, probably forever. China proved that you could have an authoritarian state that is also capitalist and very successful. Now our thesis is bad. Before we thought, hey, we make everyone capitalist, they'll all want all the stuff that we have, and they're going to become democratic because we're such a great model. Not, not so much. In fact, it's going the other way. Our companies are bringing authoritarianism here because they're not able to speak up against China. They're not able to push back. The NBA, Nike, all these companies have huge operations and huge business in China. And uh, Hollywood, that's where all their growth is coming from. So all their movies are China friendly. Uh, arguably, some of them are propaganda. The other part of this multipolar world is our democratic capitalist systems haven't adapted to these concentrations of capital and power and low birth rates and high debt levels that come with late stage capitalism. We just haven't adjusted. When people perceive there to be stagnation, there's unrest. So we need growth, we need progress, we need these things. And yet when you're in debt, it's very hard to progress. And when you have huge concentrations of capital, it's very hard to progress because you need lots and lots of people spending and traveling and starting businesses and doing things in order to have a thriving economy that's well distributed, where lots of people can spend, not just a very few. A very rich person, as great a vacation or as giant a yacht they can buy, they can only be at one place at one time. So there is a cap on their spending. There is much less of a cap if more people can be doing that spending. And that's not what's happening in our country. And we're breaking up into polarities. People have talked about China, US, and Europe. 
I don't think Europe is a force here for many of the reasons we've discussed already. So really, it's China and the U.S. And then, of course, there's Russia, which has oil and force to offer. So I don't think Russia is going to be a polarity, but they might use force to become one, especially in Europe. And we have to watch out for that. If we still value Western ideals, and I'm talking about individual and civil liberties, freedoms of speech and press, human rights, those are things we have to fight for. And those are also things that we haven't always historically lived up to, whether it's from slavery or redlining or any number of injustices that that still happen in the country. We have improved. We have gotten better. We have moved forward in terms of gay rights, in terms of minority rights, in terms of diversity. All of these things are positives. We are moving in a positive direction. But the world doesn't have to play by our rules. The world does not have to adopt our values, but they are going to try to spread theirs and they are very different. China's values are not our values. China's values are a social credit system where you don't get to travel if you have a low uh, social credit score because you've hung out with the wrong people or you bought the wrong thing online. And at this point, we have no choice but to live up to those values because there's too many cell phones, there's too many leaks and too many sources for us to get away with things for very long. So we have to be on our best behavior because the next time a police officer puts their knee on somebody's neck, someone is going to be there to film it. So we all have to be on our best behavior and living up to our values. But we also can't set the bar in an insane level that that no one can live up to. So I think we need to strike that balance. And we need to push back on the forces that don't share our values, both abroad and domestically. There are people here who want to see people fired for saying the wrong things, for not relying on government or listening to every mandate. We have to have a system that accommodates that because the alternative is so much worse. Little China is growing inside here and we have to push back on that as much as on big China that's growing out there. And most important, once again, we have to prove that we have better answers. The days of American exceptionalism are over. We have to prove that our capitalism is better, that it's more just, that democracy is something worth having. It's no longer presumed. That's a very different world. We're not the lone superpower anymore. And aside from our military and the dollar as the reserve currency, we're at risk. The other thing that's extremely important is for us to understand, question, and challenge power here and in the rest of the world. The biggest pitfall of power is how far people will go to attain it and how much farther they'll go to preserve it. Imagine the psychopath who can rationalize invading another country and killing people for no reason. That is pure evil. But you know what? I suspect that every powerful leader or anyone who seeks power is somewhere on a narcissism to psychopathy spectrum. Don't think our leaders aren't. We've been supplying military, starting with the Obama administration and continuing through Trump. We've been supplying arms to the Saudis 
to basically what people are calling a genocide in Yemen. Over 250,000 people are dead there with our weapons. And U.S. leaders have somehow rationalized that. So the only thing that separates us from Putin is degree and degrees of separation. That's the only thing that makes our psychos more palatable. But they are psychos nonetheless. And just in general, when someone's not especially gifted or creative and they pursue a field like media or especially politics that has low pay and unbelievable scrutiny, they're not looking for money, at least not primarily. They're looking for influence and power. That is inherently sociopathic. That is more than enough to question every one of their motives, their principles, and their tactics, every single one of them, at the lowest levels of government. Once you enter into that, yes, there are some people who you know start out very noble and want to do the right things, but systems corrupt. And also there is that something where you flip on those camera lights on MSNBC or Fox News or whatever channel, and these people love that attention. It feeds their narcissism. It feeds their need to be powerful, to be influential. And that is a very scary kind of person. And we don't do nearly enough questioning of those people, especially the ones on our side. Yeah, we'll we'll blow off steam on Trump or Nancy Pelosi or whoever it is that you happen to hate that day. But we are not doing nearly enough scrutiny of these people. Uh, you know, when when Nancy uh, Pelosi says, oh, you know, when you discover that, that she's made $150 million and outperformed Warren Buffett while being a congresswoman uh, trading on insider information, we should all be outraged. It doesn't matter if she's on your side or supports, you know, some of the issues that you like. That is insanity to me. Just as you would be upset that Trump did some insider dealings or whatever he was involved with. They all have to be taken to task and voted out and replaced with other people. And you keep replacing them until they learn. Now, the counterbalance to power is strength. You know, I was thinking about the, um, the teachers unions. Our teachers didn't come into work for over two years. They're still not coming in. Every other Western democracy kept their schools open. Even though we have had vaccines for well over a year, even though we have masks, even though students are near zero risk as carriers and uh, for getting sick or transmission, there have been no major incidents in all of these Western schools, and yet they won't come in. And then someone posted a photo online during this attack on the Ukraine. It was of a beautiful cake that a hotel worker made for one of the reporters and left in their room. There are air raids. Missiles are flying overhead. Their families are at risk. Their buildings are being bombed. Everyone can die. They're still at work. They're running a hotel. They're baking beautiful gold leaf cakes for strangers, for foreigners, for reporters from other countries. Our own teachers won't come to work. Think about what that means. There are three parts to strength that I want to talk about today. Leverage, masculinity, 
and patriotism. The greatest peacemaker in the world is leverage. Both individual and national assets are leverage. Expertise is leverage. Productivity and the ability to produce things, that's leverage. Status is leverage. Knowledge, allies, influence, these are all leverage. But leverage is only as good as your ability to defend it and your adversary's ability to replace it. Ukraine didn't have any, certainly not enough. So we didn't feel like we had to honor our commitments. But the bar is pretty high. Your leverage has to be so good that other people will fight for it. That's where we are. We really need to get to work. And we need to help people build individual leverage. And also, we together have to build national leverage. We also need masculinity. And let me define it for you, because I think there's a lot of, you know, talk about toxic masculinity, and it's gotten a bad rap, to say the least. To me, masculinity is the capacity to harm ruled by the instinct to protect. And masculinity can save America if it's principled. What are those principles? And I, I debated whether or not I would go through the whole list, but I think it's important. So let me go through this list. Number one is accountability. Before you look outside of yourself, knowing what you could have done better to make a situation different, taking accountability for your actions and looking within first. We're very quick these days to point our fingers at other people and what they're doing wrong long before we ever look at ourselves and, and how we didn't live up to what we should have done. Adaptation. World is changing really fast and uh, we need to learn to adapt to circumstances quickly. Also, calm in adversity. When things do change and sometimes for the worse, masculinity means Keeping calm, keeping those around you calm, that is a sense of leadership because when you're out of control, everyone else feels like things are out of control, especially your kids and, and other people who might be prone to panic. Competitiveness. Not everyone gets a trophy in life and our kids have to know that and they'll be better off for it. Defending liberties and the weak. We're too quick to turn to authority rather than dealing with people, negotiating through situations but also defending the weak. And I don't mean some invented struggle on the internet. I'm talking about someone who's being attacked, someone who's in real trouble, someone personally, not esoteric groups that you've anointed yourself as some protector. Focus on the people in your real life who might be struggling. And not, I'm not talking about being offended. I'm talking about real struggles in life. Delayed gratification. We want everything yesterday, Amazon deliveries, we want all of the shows released all at once so we could binge them. Uber Eats is practically shooting the stuff into our mouths. This is the bar that we've set, but masculinity is learning how to save for later, whether that's sexual gratification, whether it's the dessert and holding off on that, or any other thing that feels good in the short term but is really damaging in the long term or impedes your progress in the long term. Discipline. I'm always working on that and it's been hard. I try to run every morning now. I try to do things that give me structure and allow me to be as productive as I can be.
In fact, I wish I was more productive today because I'm filming this very late at night. Fairness, fatherhood and family, staying with your kids if you choose to have kids and choosing to have kids and accepting that responsibility and being a good father, whether you're divorced or whether you're together or whatever your situation. Fitness. I'm trying. I hope you are too. Focus on what you can control. We burn a lot of cycles. I mean, <laughs> one could argue that this entire video is something that I can't control, but I, I, I actually do feel that there's something here I can influence. And so that's why I'm doing it. I can control making this video. I can't control how you receive it. Forgiveness. We have to learn to forgive. That's I think a masculine trait that's been forgotten. I've seen some very rough fouls in uh, playing basketball and watching basketball, uh, elbows to the face, people getting stitches and hospitalized. And then, you know what? They shake hands eventually. You know, there are some guys that'll hold a grudge forever, but a lot of times they will forgive. We generally are very low on forgiveness in our society right now. You can get kicked off of Twitter and never come back <laughs> because there is no institutional forgiveness. And certainly the people who would drum you off of a platform or out of a job, I don't know that they're full of forgiveness either. But I think it's a really important quality and it's a show of strength, not weakness. Grit. Uh, there have been books written about that. I don't need to get into it. Humility. Knowing what you don't know. And accepting sometimes that you might be wrong. Humor. We need to have humor. Sometimes it's the only way to cope. And we're slowly taking bits and pieces away from people. And that's how we bond. Like I remember as a kid, you made fun of somebody and that brought you closer together. It was a bonding experience. And you played with stereotypes and all these things and it didn't matter. They did the same thing to you. It showed that you're not holding anything back and you're not treating them as some precious artifact and as a real human being the way you would treat anybody else. Learning by doing. I think apprenticeship is so important, but not even institutionally, just, you know, teaching your kids how to fix something or learning experientially. That is fundamentally masculine. And that's why a lot of boys and, and men are not going into college anymore because it's sitting there scholastically flipping through pages. And a lot of males are not wired for that. That is a more optimal way to learn, no matter what the trade is. Peace first. Notice I'm not saying peace only because sometimes that doesn't work as we're seeing today. Pulling your weight, contributing your share or more than your share, whatever the relationship might be, whatever the medium of exchange, it's not always money. Sometimes it's responsibilities. Sometimes it's other expectations, but knowing what those expectations are and living up to them. Reciprocity. I did an entire episode on that. If you're interested, look it up. But that is what's going to drive this world forward. Understanding what other people want and expressing what you want in terms of other people's needs. And I, I went into all of this in the episode. You should check it out. Respect. Important. Very important to Vladimir Putin. Possibly more important than anything else. And sportsmanship. Sometimes you got to help your opponent up. And this is something the U.S. practiced very well on an institutional level. After World War II, we built up our enemies. That's something very few countries have ever done without raping and pillaging as well.
whether we're talking about as a nation or as individuals, sportsmanship is important. I'm sure there are others I've missed, but we need to recapture what masculinity truly means. Whatever it is that we're doing now is not working. The last thing is patriotism. I was born in the Ukraine. My grandfather literally died for Ukraine and the Soviet Union. My dad fought for it. I would never fight for Ukraine or die for Ukraine. But if the U.S. were invaded, I would fight and risk dying for the U.S. That is the power of immigration. I doubt that a lot of people living here in the U.S. today would fight for this country. And that is the power of privilege. And that's also why American progressives will always need the patriots that they hate. How long do you think the United Progressives of America would survive if they had their own country bordered by Xi's China and Putin's Russia? Have you ever been served dumplings by a Harvard professor? That's how it would go. If there's anything I want the left and the right in the U.S. to realize is exactly how much they need each other. Realistically, the left isn't suiting up to defend this country or to build houses or to do anything physically useful. And generally speaking, the right isn't going to make the next Google or the next mRNA vaccine, which a lot of them don't believe in. Um, so for better or worse, conservatives are dad and progressives are mom and America works best as a two-parent household. And we need to start teaching Americanism and patriotism in schools. And I know there's been a lot of talk about nationalism. I'm not talking about nationalism. Patriotism is being proud of your nation, being proud of your culture, being proud of your heritage, upholding your values, protecting others and defending them. Nationalism is comparative. It's belief in the inferiority of others, that you have supremacy against others or should have supremacy against others. So I'm not talking about nationalism. I'm talking about patriotism. And the arch enemy of patriotism is tribalism. And we have way too much of it now. And we have way too many merchants of dissent in this country who are trying to break us apart. And I'm not saying to do anything to them, except stop listening. Except realize that the people around you, no matter what their gender or skin color or life preference, they're just people. They're just people and they probably want a lot of the same things. And you know what? The ones that they don't want, you don't have to worry about. It's okay. It's okay to have those differences. I think the best formula is patriotism plus individualism because patriotism provides that commonality layer, that thing that bonds us all together. And individualism is that freedom to pursue those liberties, to, to be free, to, to do the things you want to do without trying to control and oppress others. I don't think there's any other way. I don't think without leverage, masculinity, and patriotism, there's going to be much left of the American experiment. No one will fight to defend what they don't believe in. 
our only choice is to make this a place worth believing in again. That also means not getting everything you want. It means that you might have to make some concessions. You can't be absolutist. If some states or cities or whatever want to be more strict or loose with controversial issues, whether it's abortion or guns or whatever else it's a, that's a hot button issue, maybe we just let it go. And maybe some things don't have to be a national argument because there are foundational things that we do believe in and we don't spend nearly enough time focusing on those. And that will be the foundation of patriotism. So when I say the real solution to Russia and China is our own disinformation campaign, it's that we have to force ourselves to believe in America again, which is something we don't right now. And everyone sees it. We're not hiding it well. And we have to convince ourselves of what America is worth. That is the first stage of our disinformation campaign because we have to start believing. You know, they say if you fake a smile long enough, eventually it'll become a real smile. We have to fake togetherness long enough for it to become real. And then we start believing it. And only then we can start convincing others that it truly is the better way. And I know to some that might sound a little wishy-washy and lacks the immediacy. It's certainly not a missile uh, into the Kremlin. No, it's not. But they say that success is the best revenge. Well, I say success is also the best defense. We just have to redefine it. Two final things I want to talk about. First is ambivalence. As much as I believe in the things I just said, they're all subject to change. Situations are subject to change. I might learn new things that change my ideas or evolve them. The scariest thing to me is certainty. Because that, to me, implies that you believe in absolutes. An absolute right, an absolute wrong, an absolute evil, or absolute good. There are very, very few absolutes in life. So I think a bit of ambivalence and uncertainty is healthy. That doesn't mean you don't pick a direction and move forward. I've picked a direction. What I've just described are the things I'm personally trying to do and I'm trying to inspire others to do. That is the direction. That is the vision. That is where I want to keep going. But over time, you know, you might need to make adjustments. And what's that Rush lyric? If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Finally, I want to talk about the future. Near term, power vacuums get filled with dirt. We have created a power vacuum. We've projected weakness. It started with Crimea. I mean, most recently, I'm sure there are examples going further back, but related to this situation. We started with Crimea, then China took Hong Kong. Now Russia is taking Ukraine. After that, it's Taiwan. China already said that they're engaging in peacekeeping operations in Taiwan. I think we know what that means, and we have to be prepared. In the intermediate term, what I expect is a huge military proliferation. 
And already Germany has announced a hundred billion euro investment in military. They're going to spend it on drones, new fighter jets, and who knows what else. And they're going to permanently raise their military spending above 2% of GDP. Just like Iraq sent a signal to the Middle East that, hey, despot in some horrible country that oppresses women, the only way you're going to keep your job is to have nukes. That's the only way the U.S. is not marching in. And guess what? We just sent the same exact message to every European country. No one's coming to save you. The U.S. isn't coming. NATO may not come. Putin might. <laughs> the one guy who's not invited might very well show up. We just not only triggered a massive nuclear proliferation, but I suspect these other countries are going to start building up serious militaries because they know that they can't count on us. Ukraine couldn't. Now, in the longer term, we're looking at something very different. What we're seeing is incredible aging in Europe. Ukraine, for example, the average age of a Ukrainian is 41 years old. Men die at the age of 66. They're dying off and they're no different than all of these other European countries, including Russia. That also creates desperation, especially in aggressive states. I talked about earlier how stagnation creates angst. Well, sometimes that angst manifests in acquisition and not peaceful acquisition. There's going to be trouble because of aging. And if there are aggressors in that region, or even China, they are at risk. What that also means is we might be looking at the very last human-fought war, or the last era for human-fought war. Future wars will be automated. We'll still augment technology with humans, but humans are going to be pushed further away to safer areas and later in the engagement when it's safer. You're going to have a very different type of war moving forward. So a lot of the technology that's going to be developed is going to take the people out of this equation. And you've seen all of those Boston Dynamics videos that they put out with those robots that could do parkour and do all those jumps and the robot dogs. That's coming. But... If we're able to sabotage them, you, me, and the purple-haired goth non-binary, we're all suiting up and marching out there with AK-47s because the robot dogs <laughs> are shaking in the corner because they got hacked. Now, don't worry. There's never been an example of a large-scale technological system failing or being hacked. Never. So the last thing I want to mention is crypto. Ukraine is now entirely funded by Hunter Biden NFTs. I kid. But Ukraine has the highest percentage in the world of cryptocurrency. 12.7% of their country has it. So this will be an interesting experiment to see if in emergency conditions, when cellular networks are probably taken out and people don't have electricity, what crypto does. But what I suspect will happen is in true emergencies, 
The only currencies that matter are trust and barter. Everything else, I don't think they're going to have time to document everything in a digital ledger, not in a wartime situation. And some are arguing, why can't Russia just create its own ecosystem and trade outside of itself with crypto? The problem with that is eventually you have to connect to the traditional financial system because all of these other companies are not going to go rogue. You still have to buy goods and services. Uh, CVS and Pepsi are not going to suddenly become pirates. Satya Nadella and Sundar Pichai are not Thelma and Louise. They're not suddenly going to go around going, oh, Russia, you want to buy your uh, underground uh, Microsoft Office or Google licenses? Sure, go ahead. We'll just send us some crypto and we'll figure out a way to get it out of crypto and into our financial system. Those companies have traditional access points and those access points are regulated and can be blocked or controlled. So it's it's a fantasy to think that you can create this rogue system without plugging into the old system. Now, the pro-crypto people are trying to get that kind of adoption and to get it uh, to be mainstream because they're going to profit off of it. They were early into purchasing crypto. And if the world has to acquire it, the, the value of their holdings are going to go up. But at this point, it's not a viable option for Russia and it's not a viable option for Ukraine either. And crypto is tied to the idea of decentralization, that is the vision that, you know, why do we need these giant countries? Why do we have to fight wars? Why do we have to have these despots? We have the technology to live in small autonomous units. It's not even necessary to be part of the system. But the problem with that is there is no way to decentralize the U.S. and Europe without first decentralizing China and Russia. And you think it's going to be easy to do that? China is a very collectivist culture and you're not going to do it with, with military. So Western decentralization without Eastern decentralization is suicide. So as the exceptionalism era ends, I hope that one of strength begins. And I hope this is your start to that era. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with others. Review it on Apple Podcasts and comment on YouTube. It really helps with visibility. And support the show on Patreon. There's going to be tons of member-only material, but most importantly, it helps support the creation of more of these episodes. That's it. I'm Steve Factor. See you next time on The McFuture. this Putin. I'm so fucking sick of this guy fucking living in my brain all day. I'm going to have to charge this motherfucker rent. Fucking piece of shit.